The concept with Advent is kind of like the concept of Lent, actually. You can go back to the Old Testament and see these rhythms that were established in the people of God in the Old Testament where they would take seasons marked off in the calendar year, every year, these same rhythms. And what would happen is every year as they, they paused and they pulled back in these intentional seasons to just reflect in new ways, stop the regular rhythms of their life for a few weeks, and, and build in some different rhythms that break up and kind of disrupt the regular rhythms of their life. And as they pulled back and spent additional time in reflection, some new, new ways of prayer, praying with community, singing a few new songs, what would happen is the truth of the good news of who their hope was in would be kind of inserted into their hearts and in their lives in a slightly different way. It would renew their faith. It would remind them of the things that sometimes we just take for granted and we begin to lose sight of in the busyness and the regularity of the patterns and habits of our life. Advent is in some ways, and Lent similarly, is tied to these Old Testament seasons of preparation, preparing our hearts to hear from God in new ways. Advent, if practiced well, ought to be what I call a season of reorientation, reorienting our hearts back to center because If you're like me, we have a tendency of veering, and we need to be intentional, get right back to who God is and what he's doing. Why then, so often, does Advent actually feel like a Hallmark holiday? How many Advents have you gone through in your life as a follower of Christ where when it's all said and done, you pack up the bags, you you put the Christmas tree away, or you you toss it out, you put all the decorations away, and you're done with all the visiting of family and everything that's gonna happen, how many of you can genuinely say that in, in, in history past in your life, you finished Advent in a more deep, in a more satisfying, in a more contented, in a deeper prayer-filled, saturated way with Christ? Can you look back on previous Advents in your life and say that's exactly what happened during Advent? For some reason, Christians uh, have this tendency of getting caught up in everything besides Jesus when it comes to Advent. We get caught up in the, the purchasing and the buying and the sales and the discounts and the, the meals and the, and the family. All of these things are not in and of themselves wicked, terrible things. They're just not the main thing of Christmas, are they? At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. One of the centerpieces of the Christian faith that God became flesh in the form of a child. It, that, and what I hope happens today as I preach this text, that should form A biblical reflection on the incarnation should form a humble posture of saying something like this regularly. It's all too wonderful for me to even begin to comprehend that God would take on flesh in the womb of Mary. In a Christian, a deep reflection on that reality should form something powerful in you. It should be undeniable that Christians are in the season of Advent because something's markedly different about them. While everyone else is going 100 miles an hour, we go five miles an hour. Because in our slowing down, in our deeper reflection, God forms something in us. The theme of our sermon series this Advent is joy. And if there's one quality that marks the Christian uniquely, it's joy. There should be no such thing as a Christian who does not... uh, absolutely and powerfully reflect the reality of joy in their life over the long haul. As we'll see from the text today, that does not mean a giddy happiness that does not reflect the reality of the hardships in your life by no means. 
Rather, what it reflects is the deep abiding satisfaction in the reality that God is for you. And joy permeates a Christian like it does not permeate any other person on this planet, no matter your circumstances, over the long haul of your life. Christians ought to be marked by joy. And we're going to do that today by kicking off by looking at a prayer that Mary prayed. A prayer in church history that's known as the Magnificat. It's this beautiful, powerful prayer in Luke chapter 1 where Mary, if you remember her circumstances, Mary is the woman that God chose in all human history to carry his son, Jesus, in her womb, to give birth to the Christ. This young woman was not yet married, and yet the Holy Spirit came over her, and she became pregnant with a small child, put her in a very dangerous predicament in those days. And yet nearly immediately, she falls on her knees and prays this prayer in Scripture that is remarkable. This week, as I was preparing for this text, I was going over and over this prayer, and I have to tell you, uh, almost immediately, I was overcome by the depth of this prayer that this young woman, Mary, prayed. It brought me to worship. Rather than sermon prep, it brought me to a place of just stopping the sermon prep (laughs) and just being with Christ, enjoying this prayer and letting her prayer become my own prayer. And I hope that's what happens to us today. So let me read this prayer to us in its entirety. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55 And then uh, we'll dig into it. And my hope today is to pull out three insights, three insights from her prayer that might help us in our journey of reorienting ourselves back to joy in the Lord this Advent. Hear Mary's prayer. Luke chapter one, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Three insights that might help reorient us back towards joy this season from that powerful prayer. Insight number one, Mary had an unbelievably high vision of God. Mary had an unbelievably high vision of God. Let me read to you a handful of these verses that we just read and reflect on them. And as I do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that actually you might not see this at first glance reading this prayer. Mary, this young girl, couldn't have been more than 15 years old when she prayed that, prayed that prayer. I know that might seem shocking to some of you because our culture is quite different. When young women get married and give birth to children, is, the age has gone up a little bit. But in that day and age, it was around the age of 15, young Mary. We don't know exactly, but that would have been kind of standard for a girl her age to be giving birth to her first child. Mary, this young girl, prays a prayer that is saturated in Scripture. Absolutely. Almost every line can be traced back to a verse in the Old Testament, 15 years old. Parents, we ought to be teaching our children to know the word that well. Okay? That's our responsibility. Verse 48. He's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Quoting from 1 Samuel 1.11. Thinking about that, that verse, the promises of Scripture that look down on our lives, that God is watching and he is seeing the humble in heart. 
He's looked on the humble estate. Notice the contrast in this prayer she prays over and over again, contrasting the humble in spirit, the poor in spirit, to the rich and how God moves towards the poor and the humble in spirit. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for us. That's taken from Psalm 89, verse 8. The mightiness of God. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? Lord, you are mighty. You're strong. You have more resources at your disposal than I do. At your command, a thousand legions of angels do exactly what you tell them to do, and not a thing or power in this universe can stop the movement of the Lord. You are mighty, God. Verse 49. Verse 49, holy is his name. That's taken from Psalm 57, verse, or Isaiah 57, verse 15. Holy is his name. He's different. Holiness has two different meanings to it. On the one hand, we talk about holiness and we talk about moral rightness, moral virtue, right? We talk about that which is holy as virtuous, right in moral standing. Certainly God being the very definition of holiness, he is holy. That which we deem moral in this life is moral because it is a quality God has. That's where morality comes from. But holiness also means set apart, different, distinct, utterly unique he is utterly unique. Were we to be in his presence, we would be like every Old Testament saint, as well as a few of the New Testament apostles who found themselves in the presence of the Almighty. They fell on their faces before him, realizing they did not belong in that place. The cherubim are around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. They say for all eternity around his presence. Were you to find yourself in that place, you would very quickly realize what the holiness of God means. Verse 50, she said, his mercy is for those who fear him. From Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 10, God is merciful. He is holy and yet he is merciful. He looks down on us in our estate, in our sinful ways. He looks down on us in all of our brokenness. And the reality that we need seasons like Advent because the reality of human life is that sometimes we get disoriented. And all the realities of life, the things we have to do in life, tend to take our eyes off the greatness and the goodness of God. And we need seasons to bring us back. And he has mercy on us. He's merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. One of the earliest phrases that became a, a stable phrase of memorization for every good Jewish man and woman in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament days, they'd recite that. He's merciful. Verse 51, he's shown strength. Again, Mary quoting from Psalm 59, verse 10, the strength of God describing his sovereignty. There's not a molecule in all of the universe, both the square inches of the universe that we've seen with our deepest telescopes and the ones that in a thousand years our deepest telescopes will never even come close to because the universe is that big. He sovereignly controls every molecule in it. You want to talk about strength? There's not one maverick molecule in all creation, said R.C. Sproul. And he was right. He's over it all. We're not talking about muscle, like a picture of Zeus, this God who is muscular and he's able to just bully his way through. That's not the strength we're talking about. He's sovereign. Nothing happens apart from the God of Scripture. He's over it all. Verse 52, he brings down the mighty. Quoted from Job chapter 5, verse 11. 
There is not one agency in all of creation that will ever dare defy the living God who will not be brought to justice. He brings down the mighty. You think you can stand against God? Your time is very short. That's that story. You think your sin will go unknown? Your time is very short. God, God will have his day of judgment. He will bring down the mighty. He fills the hungry with good things, quoted from Psalm 34, verse 10. God cares deeply about our brokenness. Think about that line. He's sovereign, not one molecule in all the universe, and yet he fills the hungry with good things. He enters into your hunger, and he feeds you. He's the bread of life. He knows your needs. He cares for you. Think of the language that's used over and over in Scripture. He's like a loving father. He comes to you. He, he comforts you. He's tender with you. Even when, when you're rebellious to him, he, he draws near to you. When you're far from him, he, he doesn't leave you, and he stays near to you. He's good. He's sovereign. He's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's present. Verse 54, he remembers his promises to Abraham. That's from Psalm uh, 132 verse 11 and many other verses by the way these are just one of the ones they're from his promises are true and your story if you're a Christian is part of a much bigger story going all the way back to the first few chapters of Genesis when God chose one man Abraham to do something new in creation to bring about healing for the nations and if you're a Christian you've been grafted into that story as a child of Abraham you are not a part. Your story is not an isolated story, somehow different from every other person of God that God has chosen over all history. It's being woven together in a fabric that God is the, the weaver. God is building a tapestry of history. Here's this young teenage girl magnifying the Lord. How many of your prayers sound anything like this? She's 15 putting us to school, putting me to school this morning. How many of your prayers sound like this? She's got a vision of God that's 10 times bigger than ours, doesn't she? she? She studied the scripture. That's why she has a vision of God that way. Her life clearly is saturated in the scriptures. And so why does she have a right vision of God? Because she's inundated in this thing. She knows God because she's allowed the scripture to define God. We are so tempted as modern Christians, modern day Christians, to allow everybody else to define God, including our own minds, We've cherry-picked the Bible. We say we like this bit of God, but not this bit of God. And we make God weak and unable to do anything. And we recreate new gods that are not the God of the Scripture. If you look to Scripture and allow God to shape who he really is, allow his words to define himself, what you find is that that God is captivating. He's not like the God that the secular world builds around them. He's not like any other God on this planet. He's captivating to the soul. He's deep to the soul. He satisfies the soul on his terms in a way that only he can satisfy. We need that this Advent, don't we? We don't need a weak God who can't meet our very needs. We need the real God who speaks truth to our souls. Scripture defines that God for us. I want to lift up our minds and our eyes to have a greater vision of God for us. He is who he is. Remember that? What was his name that he gave to Moses? I am. Just consider that for a moment. When God gave his personal name, Yahweh. You know, something with that name, the word Yahweh. It's, it's the two Hebrew sounds that, that, that are like whispers, the breath of life, Yahweh. The Hebrews in the Old Testament wouldn't even write it fully out. They would remove the vowel pointings. <laughs> 
as time went on, as vowel pointings were introduced to the Hebrew, Hebrew language, they wouldn't even write it fully out because it was so holy and reverent. They wouldn't write that name out. He's holy. His name means I am. He, he holds and sustains breath itself, Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? We take him for granted. And we need seasons of reorientation to remind ourselves that's who God is. Why am I being distracted by everything? Why am I more excited for Black Friday sales than I am about the reality of the incarnation? We need scripture to define who God is. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We need to allow our souls to be stirred again. Advent 2021, let it be a marked season for you. May it not be marked by sentimentality. That is not the heart of Advent. It's God, the holiness of God incarnated into human flesh. He who sustains the universe drawing near to you in the womb of young Mary. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. The question is not, does your soul magnify something? We all magnify something with our soul. Every single one of you are magnifying something. I'm magnifying something. The, thing, the question that we have to ask ourselves in Advent is, what is my soul magnifying? Where is my time going? Where is my mind going? Where is my money going? Where are my friendships going? Where, are, where, where is my, my soul being postured? We're magnifying something all day, every day. Most of the the things we choose or we don't choose and we just allow life to drift us through, most of the time we're magnifying something that cannot sustain us, nor can it serve our souls meaningfully. Only God can do that. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She had a big vision of God. Advent is a chance for you to allow your vision of God to become bigger, to get rid of this sentimentality version of God and to allow scripture to define who he is. Not only does she have a big picture of God, I told you three insights. Number two, Mary had a very humble vision of herself. A very humble vision of herself. As Christians, we wanna think big thoughts of God and small thoughts of ourselves. We spend most of our time flipping the script, don't we? We think very big thoughts of ourselves and very small thoughts of God. We think of ourselves as the center of the universe and God as someone who simply serves our universe. You want to be a Christian? You need bigger thoughts of God. You need smaller thoughts on yourself. Listen to her prayer, verse 48. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Very similar to verse 52. He exalts those of humble estate. Again, that's from Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. She's thinking of herself in proper terms. She's considering her humble estate. She knows deep down inside. She's not pasting this on with words. She, she, she's reflecting the posture of her heart before a holy God, and she's saying, what, what right do I have to be chosen by that God to do anything in his kingdom? Anything, let alone carry the child Jesus in my womb. 15-year-old Mary rightly thinking about herself. When she thinks of herself, she thinks of humility first. I'm nothing great. I don't want to be anything great. I'm not aiming to be something great. I don't need a name. I want the name of God to be the name that everyone knows when they see on me. She thinks low thoughts of herself. In a world inundated with, with a thousand voices telling you to think bigger thoughts of yourself, you're somebody. Think bigger thoughts. 
The Bible tells us to actually find your true meaning by thinking lower thoughts of yourself. Not worse thoughts as if you don't have value, just true thoughts. The, the idea that you are humble when you stand before the glory of the king. See, see, think of yourself like the moon. The moon can't boast in his greatness and his brightness, can he? He is just reflecting the sun. And that's what we are. Anything that we have in this life is simply a reflection of the brightness of the king. Here we are like moons boasting in ourselves. Verse 52, he's... I'm sorry, verse 48, she calls herself his servant. And then verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel. We've talked about that term a lot in scripture. Servant can also be translated slave. It's this idea that we're completely given over to the life and the, and the, and the desire of somebody else. It's not her own choices she wants in life. She doesn't consider herself free. She considers herself locked into the design and the desires of God. Whatever you would have me do, that's where I'll do, God. And I do it joyfully. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. You know, that verse did something to me this week that I hope it does to you as you go home this week and begin to pray this prayer. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Go over the thoughts of your heart from the last week. I'm going to give you a moment right now, and I want you to really think for a moment. What were my thoughts consumed with? Take a moment. And now take another moment and actually be honest with God, because <laughs> he knows what they really were. So go ahead. Do it again. What were your thoughts consumed with this week? I think the reality is, is that in our fallen estate, most of us spend much of our time thinking about ourselves. <laughs> We're very proud. I'm very proud. I know this sin in myself. And I think we all bring that in here. We live in a culture that begs us to be proud of who we are. And, and, and the scriptures say that he scatters the thoughts of the proud and he invites us to actually remove our ego, remove our pride and step into our knees before a holy God and see his glory and see our smallness because once you behold the greatness of the king of kings, there's no room left to be proud. You can't have it. Mary exemplified this as a 15-year-old. Augustine, back in the first few centuries of the church, had this great phrase. I've shared this with you before. But Augustine coined this Latin phrase that says, en curvatus en se. It literally means in English, curved in, and, curved in on oneself. The idea Augustine coined is that we're designed to be like an arrow pointing up to God. But we spend all of our, our life bent in like this. <laughs> and that arrow rather than pointing up to God, is just bent. It's curved in like this. And everywhere we go, we're just this bent arrow, walking around, pointing to ourselves. And every transaction and every relationship is just like this. And what we're thinking is, what do I get out of this? How does this bless me? In the great scale of what I'm giving, am I getting, am I giving at least what I'm getting out of this? If not, it's not a worthy transaction. And so we, we're just bent in like this. And Augustine said, we need to be straightened out <laughs> because your life's not about you. You're a Christian. You're an arrow pointing to heaven. That's what you are. We need, a, we need, we need like a good, you know, uh, 
chiropractor to bend our backpack straight again. Okay? Because we spend so much time in this position. If you see someone who's got a hunched back, you know it's like that because slowly it's just, it's just been building and building and over the years and, and it, it didn't get fixed the right way. And over so much time, we don't even realize how much time we've spent curved in on ourselves. In Advent, we slow down. We slow down. And we look at the silliness of walking around like an arrow pointing at yourself and we say, What am I doing? What am I doing? And we allow God just to straighten us. Why? Because he's merciful. Because he draws near to those who are regularly sinful, who have formed bad habits of the years. And he's so good. He fills the hungry when we come to him with open hands. And he bends us back straight again so that we're useful in his kingdom. The great joy of being a Christian is being useful in his kingdom. The greatest need in your life is the need of your soul to find its worth and value wrapped up in the majesty of the king of kings. Think of Matthew chapter 20, 25 to 28. Jesus called his disciples to him. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So what's he saying? He says, you know, when you look around at the secular world around you, says Jesus, they think of greatness as those who hold power and authority. Mm. But whoever would be great among you, says Jesus, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a room full of servants. And the more time we spend bent in like this, curved in on ourselves, as Augustine would say, the, the, the less we're able to actually read this scripture and have any real conviction in our heart. We can go through church a thousand times Come in, come out, come in, come out, come in, come out, come in, come out. No conviction, no growth, no real, no real sanctification in our hearts. We're just the same person 10 years later, in, out, in, out, in. Why? Why? Because we never stop to realize God straighten us out again. We need it more than ever. Church, slow down. Don't let Advent rush by 100 miles an hour. Slow it down. We need small views of ourselves. Big views of God. Number three, very important here. Mary saw much beyond, way beyond her circumstances. Mary saw beyond her circumstances. Let's talk about Mary a little bit. 15 years old, unmarried, first century, finds herself pregnant in a Hebrew community. Not a good situation to find yourself in. <laughs> I mean, very good situation to find yourself in because she was pregnant with the Lord's child and she knew God was good. Clearly, she's got faith. In terms of danger, she's not in a good spot. Let's think of the dangers that she was in. Number one, uh, she's not yet married to Joseph. If, she, if he finds out she's pregnant, that's probably the end of that relationship and any future relationship she might have, right? Uh, that's a dangerous place to be. But by the grace of God, God will next appear to Joseph and make sure that Joseph doesn't leave her. So he knows that Mary's not out committing adultery somewhere. But not only with Joseph, but now she's got the eyes of the community, right? Imagine a, a young woman's pregnant in this small Hebrew town of Israel, town of Bethlehem. All of a sudden she's pregnant before marriage. Gossip starts to say, what's she gonna say? Oh, it's the Lord's child. <laughs> How many people are gonna believe that? You didn't get a vision about that, no? See, now, now she's open to slander, and you all know 
what it's like to have someone say something about you and then kind of look at you a little bit like, oh, you know, you've got a mark now. Think about what that was like in first century small town Israel when it came to that issue. We, we don't know this. We don't know this at all. Not only that, uh, she could be killed for this. So we talk about slander, a young woman committing adultery outside of marriage. That's reason for stoning. And so here she is. She's trusting God. Her circumstances, whoa. We want to talk about brokenness. We want to talk about hard stuff to go through. 15 years old. 15, little girl. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That word means to leap with joy. <laughs> it, it, means, it means to be doing heel clicks as she's walking down the streets of Bethlehem. Verse 48, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. <laughs> she, she understands that despite the circumstances, God's doing something deeper. Her circumstances would blind most of us, but she's looking to her God who sees beyond the circumstances and she's allowing his vision of the reality of her circumstances to say, no, it's good. It's really good. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me in the midst of what she knows will be hardship. Keep in mind, she left Bethlehem as soon as she could. As soon as she knew she was pregnant, she ran to her, to her cousin Elizabeth's house to, to, to get out of Bethlehem because of what the people would say. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel. Again, she's finding her story, her reality, wrapped up in the much larger story of all of Scripture, what God's been doing since Abraham. How can Mary pray such prayers in the midst of such circumstances? I, some time ago, I was serving with a ministry in Chicago. I'll have them come by early next year to come share about their ministry. It's called GRIP, amazing ministry in the city of Chicago. They work in schools. They work with at-risk youth throughout the city of Chicago. Many of you have served with them over the years. And I was volunteering in high school in the near West Side, just ministering to children in the school, being in the classrooms, trying to be a help. And something interesting happened. Uh, around Advent, it was right about this time, it's probably about eight years ago now, uh, right around Advent, I started no noticing fights breaking out all across the school, fist fights. I started noticing kids coming in with bruised faces. I started noticing uh, the classroom size was shrinking tremendously. Some, one day, there, I think there was only three kids in the class. I asked the teacher, he said, oh, they've all been suspended. Oh, what's going on? He said, oh, you're new to this, aren't you? I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, he goes, you don't realize what Advent is like for these kids. He said, you know, he goes, a lot of these kids, the, the home they're growing up in, he said, when they come in and on, on Advent, every, they're going down the street on the bus and they're seeing a thousand billboards of happy families with presents mounted up to the ceiling and, and, and this myth that will never be their reality as far as they're concerned. And Advent is the season where that all comes out in this school. We see that. It's fistfights. It, 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 the the, the pent-up frustration with the bombardment of what your life should be, the happiness of it all, with the reality of what your life is, comes out in very broken ways when they all get together in this school. We see this every single year. And some people, like those kids I was trying to serve, it can be quite easy to see how we allow our circumstances to rob us of our joy in Christ. But those kids are just human, and they were doing what all humans do. It just was coming out in 
a young teenage way. What we allow ourselves to do is we allow our circumstances to define the reality that we're going through. And the reality is, is that we all have difficult circumstances in this room today. I don't care what your story is, you've got circumstances. You've got difficulty, you've got challenges. Poverty, worrying about our children, stress about our jobs, need of a job. You've got unsaved loved ones, guilt over personal sin, sickness, worrying about our marriages, fear about the next chapter in your life. If we as Christians are not careful, we end up finding ourselves much like those children, where we allow the reality of our circumstances to just kind of build up like a big brick wall in front of our eyes, and all we can see is that brick wall. And we're walking around with a big brick wall, and everything becomes tainted by our circumstances. And, and what Mary is doing in this moment is she's looking at the reality of the goodness of God who's over it all and she's not allowing her vision of her circumstances to define the way she's going to go through life. She's allowing God's vision of her circumstances to define it. And when you place your faith and your hope in God, you have this different vision over things and you find yourself suddenly wrapped up into a much bigger story. What reason does she have to to celebrate the goodness in light of her circumstances. It's the gospel. It's the goodness of what God is doing. You might say, yeah, well, her story is unique. You might say, what great things has God done for me, as Mary prayed. Or you might say, how has God exalted someone like me of humble estate? It's the essence of the gospel is the answer to that. You want to pray a prayer like this? All you need to know is the gospel. That's it. Nothing more. Because he has done mighty things for you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Scripture says that as a result of your sin, you were a rebel to God and you were serving darkness, not light. But God in his great mercy sent Jesus to the cross, not just as a martyr for a religious belief, but to actually take your penalty for what you owe as a debt to God on his own shoulders. He has done mighty things for you. He's paid your debt before a holy God. He's drawn close to you in the person of Jesus. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's poured the gifts of the Holy Spirit into you. He's given you a church family. He's promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's secured your eternity. And it all begins, heaven invading your life right now, despite your circumstances, no matter what happens in this life, God says, I'm with it, I'm in it with you, and I will never leave you. He has done mighty things for me. Who cannot say that prayer this morning? Just for a moment, look at your circumstances. Look at all the things that you're saying right now, it's too big. And then you say deep in your heart, he's done mighty things for me. The cross has declared it. There is no circumstance that will rob me of the reality of Jesus on the cross on my behalf. And then you determine in your soul before you leave this morning that Advent will not go by the way other Advents have. And you say, I will walk through this and I will allow my soul to slow down and to just be in the presence of God who redefines my reality through the scriptures. Let the truth of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection satisfy you. Advent, in a way, should open your heart and your mind to truths of scripture that you may have forgotten or simply chosen to ignore. Don't let it fly by. We're gonna put this into practice right now. I wanna invite you to stand up and I'll invite our band to come up here. We're gonna have a moment of prayer right now as a family and what we're gonna do is actually pray this prayer. I'll lead us in the time. 
And I wanna encourage a couple things right now. If you came with somebody who's your family, who you feel comfortable doing this with, (laughs) put your arm on them, put your hand on their shoulder. If you're with a friend and your friend gives you permission to put your hand on their shoulder, go ahead. (laughs) We're gonna pray this as a church, and there's something powerful about praying together as a church because uh, the scriptures say that we're a family. And even though you might not be super well-known in this place, if you commit this yourself, yourself to this church community, you are knit together in a way that actually is as strong and in some ways stronger than your blood family. This is your local church. And right now as you pray these prayers, everyone around this room who's got their own circumstances, their own brokenness, their own challenges, no matter how good we look this Sunday morning, it's all there and we share a tenth of it with the people in this room. Everyone's struggling but they're all gonna pray this prayer together with you at the same time. I think God's pretty honored in that. As I say this prayer, I'm gonna invite you to say it in your hearts, pray it over those you're with. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Christian, that is true of you. That is true of you. Not the same way as Mary, but it's true of you. The generations will look on what Christ has done for you on the cross and call you blessed. It's the core of your identity. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Yes, he has. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. Sovereignty. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. precious line here. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. 